Welcome to the Fancy Scientist Podcast. I have a really special episode for you today. I talked to Julie Henry, and Julie works with animals. She works in wildlife, but not in the conventional sense at all. In fact, she found out pretty early on that being a scientist wasn't right for her, but she loved talking about wildlife. So now, after a career working in zoos and aquariums, what she does is she is a facilitator and a speaker, and she talks about leadership using animals as an example. She is also the author of the book Wisdom from the Wild, and she works with corporations, again, using animals as examples of how people can become better leaders. So what an interesting job, and we just have a really fun and flowing conversation about how she got there from working at zoos and aquariums, and it's a job that she has created herself, and how did she do that? So if you're at all interested in unconventional careers, if you're interested in public speaking at all, this episode is definitely for you. There is a lot of wisdom, though, about how knowing what job is right for you and about listening to yourself as well. That's one of the key messages that I love is really tuning in and listening to yourself and working from your passion. So let's get started. Welcome to the Fancy Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, an unconventional wildlife biologist who never fit the scientist stereotype. In this podcast, I share with you my insights as a scientist and offer you real talk on wildlife, research, conservation, and advice on this unusual career. Being a wildlife biologist is not what you think it is. Join me to learn what science is really like and how to become the best version of yourself so you can thrive, effectively conserve nature, and enjoy this beautiful life we share with so many other beings. Let's get started. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here. I have so many questions for you. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. So you have a very interesting job right now. Can you describe what your job is like and how you got there? Yeah. So in a nutshell, I use lessons from wildlife and wild places to help people grow as leaders. And the reason that I do that is twofold. One, I think that it levels the playing field and allows everyone to access leadership um, uniquely because it doesn't matter if you have a Harvard MBA or you barely graduated high school or if you live in Tokyo or rural Oklahoma, we can think about cheetahs and um, sea turtles together. And chances are you don't know everything about that animal. And so just like you don't know everything about leadership. Um, but the other thing is I was a science kid at heart and I didn't find um, leaders or leadership lessons that I connected with very young. And so I wanted to create the kind of work and book and uh, keynotes that I would wanted to listen to as a young professional and still do today. Mm -hmm. Did you start off then a traditional science route, wanting to be a scientist? And, and then how did you get the idea for animals as leaders and moving into speaking and writing books? Yeah. So I grew up in Homewood, Flossmore area. My dad worked in the steel mills. My mom was a teacher and I loved the Great Lakes. I still love the Great Lakes, but I also dreamed of the sea. And that's why my first job was at Shedd Aquarium in Chicago, because that was my hometown aquarium. But I dissected a shark when I was in high school. Actually, I moved to Cleveland at the time, but I knew I wanted to go to college and study 
zoology at that time. And, but then I didn't fit. I was like, I tried, I got an internship at a doctor's office and honestly thought that was totally boring. <laughs> and then I got an internship being an actual scientist working in uh, aquaculture research. And I was much more interested in sharing the findings than I was doing the actual research, which made me start to think, oh, maybe I love science, but I'm not supposed to be a scientist because I'm far more interested in what nature can teach us about the way we live our lives. And in this case, leadership. So I had to step away. It's the, still the lens through which I see the world. I'm a science person at my core, but I'm not a practicing scientist. Yeah. And before we started re recording, we were chatting and you mentioned something that like, you don't make a good scientist. <laughs> and I, I can relate to that because I have felt similarly. So why don't you tell me what you mean by that? And I can tell everyone my experience as well. Yeah. When you are a good scientist, you have a sixth sense, right? You can look at a data chart and see between the numbers and realize, oh, something was not calibrated here, or the weather must have shifted over here, or you're just curious about the next question. And I'm curious about the next question. But when I shifted from in, in high school, science was about answers, right? I know how to get A's on tests because I love it. And then I went to college and I realized that, oh, science is about questions and I'm supposed to be the one designing yeah. experiments. And I don't really want to design the experiment because I just want to do it. And it was super unfamiliar. And I just realized when I was counting fish eggs under a microscope at three o'clock in the morning, and I was so fascinated about seeing a fish egg and I just wanted to share every, all my knowledge. And people were like, yeah, no, just keep counting fish eggs. We're going to be here like all night unless you just keep doing this. I'm like, I'm, I can't stay in this little tiny area. So that's when I started realizing it's my love. I almost stayed at college another semester <laughs> longer than I had to take more science classes, but I don't have that sixth sense that scientists have. And, and thank God there are people that do. Yeah. I had a very similar experience. It took me a lot longer though, to figure it out. It really wasn't until graduate school that I didn't know what science was really, because like you said, I loved school and I did really well in biology and I love learning about the ecology units, but they don't teach you. And even like when you do labs, it's really about learning hands-on you don't really learn how to ask questions or design an experiment. You you propose a hypothesis, but it's in the context of what they want you to learn about. So yeah. when I went to graduate school, I was like, oh, there's no instructions. Like you're making up the question. And a lot yeah. of people think you just like observe animals. And decades ago, you could do that. Jane Goodall did stuff like that. But nowadays, like you're right, you really need that question-oriented mindset and like you, I got so excited about talking about the animals and talking about the research and like my bosses, they would be like on to the next question. And I'm like, I'd rather be talking to people about it <laughs> than like writing grants or thinking of like new ideas for it. Yeah. You know, and that's the biggest parallel that I see right now between science and leadership is I have a whole new keynote on that. It's called trust your questions because somehow we think that leadership is about answers and somehow we think that science is about answers and neither are true. They're all mm -hmm. choose your own adventure stories. And that's what makes them so perfect to cross fertilize and, and share lessons between the two. Mm -hmm. Why was it important for you to work on leadership? What was it about leadership that attracted you? As a kid, I learned at the feet of my parents, as many kids do, and, and my dad worked in leadership development, so I was by default interested in it. But I was really interested when I started thinking about the fact that leaders um, are tired, like they're overwrought and they need retreats, they need training, but rather than sitting in a conference room all day, let's go outside or let's bring them to the aquarium or the zoo or the science museum or someplace interesting because 
then you can hook them right in a different way. So that's why I did spend time teaching people about science, like working in zoos and aquariums. I was in the education department. I did that part, Mm -hmm. but what I got super interested was the leadership um, angle because I could reach a new audience, corporate groups differently. And it's my conservation Trojan horse too. Like if I can talk to people who work in a limestone mine about animals by default, I'm talking about conservation. And so it's another way uh, to think about and value wildlife and wild places. So you go to like different corporations and organizations and train their staff on how to be good leaders and you use animals and nature as examples. Yeah. Yeah. I either go out to different organizations like limestone mines or commercial insurance companies or banks, or I go to conferences and I'm the keynote uh, address kicking off the conference or doing facilitation for team building retreats, even executive coaching, honestly, one-on-one and find that I connect a lot with people that work in technical fields. So whether that's STEM professionals or whether that's like all my bankers, I love my bankers because they're very left brain. I can relate to that, that left brain. And so how can I pull you out of your shell and animals are memorable and they're fun. Like I want to be joyful. Yeah. I always think about like when we're kids, like if you get like bed sheets for a kid, it always has like giraffes and elephants and there's always all these animal oriented things. And I don't know, like it just like animals always bring people together or there's a news clip of an animal in the street or something like a coyote in the street. That one's a little bit more controversial, but still it immediately draws people in, although it shouldn't be controversial, but Every time I do a talk or something, I get people sharing me. Have you seen this thing on YouTube? So how do these organizations, like I know they book you. So like somebody in the company books you, but I'm assuming that a lot of the people don't know who you are. And then you talk to them and they're like, why? What's the response when you start talking about like naked mole rats and stuff like that? (laughs) The best elevator speech, right? Sometimes I get people who are walking through the Los Angeles airport, LAX, and they'll see my book in the gift shop. And then they'll email me and be like, or send me a message on LinkedIn. This is very interesting. Tell me more. And I love that because I've caught people's attention and that's where it starts. It's either people finding my book someplace or it's somebody that's been in one of my audiences. And usually the response is, I'm so glad that we're talking about leadership in a different way because there's a lot of lists. There's a lot of processes. There's a lot of systems and they are necessary. Do not get me wrong. But then I look at leadership as a critical thinking skill and you can feel comfortable walking outside, even metaphorically and wondering, right? Nobody knows everything about the outside. Oh, a storm just came through. What's that? That's what leadership is. And so that's how I can get to the squishy parts about leadership is using the outdoors as, and it's not just a metaphor for metaphor's sake. That's not why I use it. Absolute truths. Like when we're talking about nature, we're talking about absolute truths. Like cheetahs slow down, you will slow down. That's a resilient strategy. So that's the other thing that's mm-hmm. I, I'm really keen on is that it's I'm not going to ask you to be a certain animal. I'm not going to give you a, a personality quiz to figure out that you're a dolphin or a manatee. That is not my work at all. <laughs> my work is let's observe how nature deals with change, teamwork, and resilience. And let's take those lessons into your leadership journey because they're doing something right because they've been around for a long time. So let's just figure out how you can use those insights. Yeah, that's so cool. And being a leader is so, it's really hard, honestly. I never realized that. And I guess really I, when I started working in graduate school and then 
I had like undergraduate assistants working with me and throughout my postdoc. So I wasn't a huge leader. I only had maybe three at the most at a, at a single time, but even like managing them and guiding them and mentoring them. And like when it comes to nonprofits, I would always think, oh, the CEO is getting paid like half a million dollars. Like it's so unfair. But now that I'm an entrepreneur and I, I do not have a big company at all, it's me and two other virtual assistants, but it's challenging. So now I understand, oh, why this is why CEOs get paid so much money because they're managing like hundreds of employees. And it's a really challenging skill to be inspiring and have the company return a profit. And if you're a nonprofit, you need to bring money in. So yeah, it's a really difficult skill and something they don't teach in science at all. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And it gets lonely at the top. And mm -hmm. I really love connecting with senior leaders because I feel that no matter where you are, eventually you may not want to move up anymore, right? You make it to director, you make it to senior vice president, you make it to CEO, you make it to board chair, but some somewhere along the line, you're good, but it doesn't mean you can stop your leadership development. You still need to rethink and consider how to approach the organization and your work in order to stay relevant and to stay having the impact that you can have. And that's, that's super important. Leadership is a, it's just a continual journey. And I'm really driven by helping people lead in the way they are born to lead. That's really important to me. Where What's unique about you? That's why I use animals that mm -hmm. are not expected like naked mole rats and sea cucumbers mm -hmm. because a lion is a, a fantastic animal, but lots of people can look at a lion and, and think about leadership lessons. Not as many can look at spiders and think the same thing. What would you say is like your top point of advice or, or lesson for leaders to help people become leaders? So like a favorite? Yeah, I, I always tell them that a leader, it was the same advice I got, and I, it's my marching orders in my work and in my speaking, is a leader's job is to create an environment in which people feel safe, mm -hmm. but not comfortable. That's my marching mm -hmm. orders. That's I love it's my mission because when you feel safe, you feel like you're, you belong. You feel like you, you're heard it's diversity, equity, you know, access, equity, inclusion, mm -hmm. all of that, but not comfortable because leadership is not about having the answers. It's mm -hmm. about making decisions. It really is it's just like science. You can't mm -hmm. have all the answers about making decisions. And if I feel comfortable enough to take a chance to make a decision, or actually I should say, I feel uncomfortable enough to be like, eh, I've got to do something. That's where you go. So that's a leader's job. Feels you should create an environment and you and the people around you feel safe, but not comfortable. I love that. Yeah. And feeling uncomfortable. Like one of the, my favorite phrases is to be comfortable feeling uncomfortable because if you're comfortable, you're not really pushing yourself. You're just on autopilot. You're not putting yourself out there. You're not really going after anything. So I totally agree with you. That's such a, a great quote. And can you tell us more about your book? It's called Wisdom from the Wild, and you have nine unbreakable laws, and they're all from the animal kingdom. They're all from the animal kingdom. Yeah. And it stems from a uh, college senior year thesis. And oh, wow. that's where I first got the idea because it was a, an assignment, a thesis. And it was part of it was teach kids about coral reefs. And I thought if I just stick with coral reefs, I'm only going to reach the kids who like science. But if I look at a coral reef like a company and think about how everything's interrelated, people have niches, et cetera, now I can hook the kids that are interested in law and economics and, and all kinds of areas. And so that was my first trial. 
And then when I got my first job at Shedd Aquarium a year later, I was championing like, let's bring companies here. And Nabisco called and they said, we want to come to the aquarium for a retreat. And somehow they passed the phone call to me and they said, what can you do? And I said, here's what we can do. And it was literally my college project from the year before. And so they came, Nabisco came to the aquarium. We did this work. And so 25 years later, I had enough opportunities to test different ideas over the years. And I found the idea of an unbreakable law really comforting because Mm -hmm. it is hard, like you're saying. And if we can think about the truths that are in nature, then that can help us take chances as leaders. As an intern, the Shed Aquarium let you have that idea and used it. They took it seriously. I was, I was on staff to be fair, but I was still 23. I was a year. I was just the loud, I was the squeakiest wheel when you're super passionate about something we're interested. We should, why create something new? And when Julie keeps talking about it down a couple cubicles, and then I didn't do it by myself. I definitely got my, but just that they listened to the Shadow Aquarium is such a prestigious organization. And that's just, that's really cool. And can you explain what would, what would Shed get from having Nabisco? Like, why would they be incentivized to do that? Yeah, that's a really good question because there's a couple things. One, they get new people in the door. Those leaders may never have come to the aquarium or maybe they've been a couple of times with their families and they didn't really see it from that angle. But we literally had all of those people standing outside the 90,000 gallon habitat coral reefs, thinking about animals and the assumptions that we make and how that relates to communication strategies. So that's interesting. Number two, from your earlier point, there's a potential funder from a nonprofit angle or a potential source of volunteers or just a community. Nabisco's got it. They still have a huge plan outside Chicago. Everybody needs to work together for conservation of the local area and the Great Lakes. So it's for all of these reasons. It's just one more audience to get in the door and it's one more person to make a connection with. Yeah. And I think scientists and conservation organizations need to do that a lot more. And I know with like palm oil, there's sustainable palm oil and the round table on sustainable palm oil. And a lot of people criticize it because it definitely isn't perfect. There's problems with it. But a lot of people criticize it too, because they involve large corporations that are involved in, in, in these palm oil plantations. But through all my years in conservation, I realized that so many problems happen because we don't have those conversations and because we think like companies are the enemy and companies are evil. And it's not companies, it's really practices that certain companies make. You can't, like Patagonia is a company. They have a CEO who is a billionaire. People talk about billionaires are evil. And I don't think people would look at him and think he's evil. He's done so many great things. So I love that you're breaking those barriers down and getting people from different worlds talking to each other. Yeah, I think that's a really sage perspective that you have, because the reality is there are companies doing things that I wish they didn't do. Mm -hmm. There are companies that are trying to do the right thing, the corporate social responsibility, the environmental justice, like all of those pieces. And there are companies that I wish we didn't have carbon and fossil fuels and and things like what we do for now. And there are people working in those companies who are conservationists at heart. And so Mm -hmm. we're, we're if we only talk to the people that already agree with us, goodness, we're missing, we call the movable middle, right? Let's Mm -hmm. talk about that. So is writing a book easy for you? Can you take us through (laughs) that process? Yeah. When I sent the proposal and I got accepted by my book publishing company and I, they said, how long do you think? I said, like four months. Yeah. That was a, and then a year later. (laughs) I finished the first draft and then they informed me that I had four rounds of editing plus 
science, I hired a science editor as well. I didn't even know all these kinds of editing existed. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know there was a science editor. I, yeah, I thought if I'm going to write a book that has leadership lessons from animals, I need to make sure I'm scientifically accurate. And yeah. it turns out I was wrong about something that makes me so oh, excited. But the science changed about mangroves. Mm -hmm. I was still using the old science. And so I had to correct it, which I loved. It was a journey. I'm so glad I did it. It was fun to have my teenagers over my shoulder. Gosh, mom, you have a lot of track changes. Like I can also learn how to write. I'm so thankful to have a team behind me. I had a team do my cover design, team design by title. Like it's mm -hmm. so much better than had I tried to do it by myself. <laughs> I did the self-publishing route and it still required tons and tons of revisions. But can you tell us about finding a publisher? Did you have to pitch it to a lot of different people? And how did that process work? Yeah, I happened to be talking to a mentor of mine in the summer of 2019, and I was bursting at the seams. I had note cards all over my table, and I just felt that I needed to capitalize on all of these case studies and business case studies and stories in a different way. And he interrupted me. I was going on and on. He goes, tell me an example. And I talked about my naked mole rats, and then he cut me off again in the best way. And he was like, stop. This is the book. I'm like, Yeah. I know, but he's, let me tell you about my publishing company, talk to them, try it. And so that was the first, it's Greenleaf Book Group. They're a hybrid publisher. Oh, wow. That's great. So you didn't have to pitch it or anything. I was super nervous and I wrote the proposal and I accept and I sent it and they said four to six weeks and they called me in two. So what they, was the naked mole rat example? I need to know that, <laughs> the selling point. The naked mole rats was the fact that we discovered naked mole rats in the late 1800s and they were so bizarre, the way they lived, the way they worked, et cetera, that we just ignored them as scientists. We just were like, <laughs> and then in the 50s, in the 1950s, we rediscovered them like Oh, they're still here. They're still doing their thing. They're still fun. And, and still the naked. <laughs> yeah, I know. Still naked and live in a colony like bees. Like the most ultimate example of teamwork, in my opinion, of the animal kingdom. Yeah. That's my example of there are teams that you are a part of or that you are leading or that you should be leading that don't look from the outside like they should work. Or people wonder like, why'd you put that person on the team? Or the, how did, why do you have meetings like that? And they question and you question, but- if you can shut all that naysaying out, or if you can put that person on your team that you wouldn't have considered before, you may have a surviving, thriving team, just like the naked mole rats, because naked mole rats are really good at naked mole rats and they don't try to be anything else. And so hmm. every one of us has been on a naked mole rat team. And if you haven't, you need to get on one. You need to lead one because that's where the magic happens. I'm going to recommend your book to professors when I see them, because we would always read papers for lab meetings. That's pretty common for uh, graduate school and beyond. Actually, so when I first started out, I had an internship at Disney World, and we actually read, it was like a team book. It was, a I remember, can't remember what it was called, but it was like playing off of the Wizard of Oz. And it was like talking about the different characters and what the lessons were from the different characters. So I started out that way. But then, yeah, we would read scientific papers and every other place I was at. But I realized like scientists are just such bad managers because we're not trained that way at all. They just think, oh, you have a lot of papers. You're going to be good at being an advisor to a graduate student or undergrads. And it's so not true. There's so many skills and lessons that are, are essential to learn. So I'm really going to recommend this book. It'd be, I think it'd be great for labs to read it together as a discussion point, read each a chapter or a law a week. Awesome. I really appreciate that. Yeah. 
Okay, so now I want to ask you some questions about your speaking career. So you get booked to give keynote talks. And can you tell us a little bit about how that works? I'm, I'm genuinely interested because this is something I had considered a couple of years ago because like we talked about, I love being on stage and I, I heard of the idea of being a public speaker for a living, but I didn't know how to quite make it work with what kinds of talks to give. And again, I would be talking about animals, but most organizations who hire these speakers are corporations. You figured out a way, but can you talk a little bit about if somebody's interested in making a, a career out of public speaking, like what approach they should use or what it's like? Yeah, I think the first thing you've got to really hone in on is what problem you are solving mm-hmm. for them. Why are they hiring you? Now, the problem could be, which is one of the problems that I solve, is I need to get butts and seats. I've got a conference. It's going to be four days long. I need to get people excited at the beginning, or mm-hmm. it's that slot right after lunch, or I need people to stay through dinner and I need that keynote address right before happy hour. That's mm-hmm. a tough spot when you're between happy hour. And so that's what I call the energy spot in a conference program. Mm-hmm. And so that's one problem that I solve. The second thing is you've really got to think about what makes your message and you unique. You've got to match the two. Like it's not enough that you have awesome experience and it's not enough that you have an awesome process or an awesome PowerPoint. There's something that's magic and you really have to lean into that. So for a long time, I, I hid I hid my zoo and aquarium experience. I, I worked for a Fortune 100 companies, which I did. Bush Gardens was a Fortune 100 company. And then I decided I needed to just be completely who I am in order to do that. And the number three is you got to put in the time. You really do have to put in the time. And that means not only potentially speaking for free, or I would say always speaking for free. I still speak for free, even this far into my career, Uh, but also researching the keynoters and thinking about the community. That's where I'm at now is Mm -hmm. what kind of community do I want to create for the people in the room and the people after I leave? Because that's important to me. It's the joyful side of leadership and letting people be who they are. That's what Mm -hmm. I leave because that's as important. You cannot... If you are a transaction, I show up, I get off the stage, I leave, mm-hmm. you will not have a relationship and you will not be successful as yeah. successful as it could be. I, I love that advice of doing it for free because nowadays there's a lot of criticism about volunteering because not everyone can afford to do it. But I've I've just talked to so many people in so many different careers. And if you want to do something Sometimes there's no alternative and you have to do it for free. I listened to Gabby Bernstein, who is a pretty famous speaker now. And she said she spoke on stages for free for five years. And even just visualizing her success, she imagined that even though she was doing it for free, that this was her career and she acted like it was her career and giving them the experience that she wanted to give them as if she were getting paid. So I think it's really important, like you said, to like to start those first steps and act as if. Can you tell me a little bit more about the energy spot? What kind, what are those talk, talks like? So I always have applicable content that people can walk out of the room and do something with. Mm-hmm. I can tell stories for days and just make people excited and motivated. That's, I just get excited about that, but it's not enough mm-hmm. to leave them there. You got to leave them with something to walk out of the room and do differently that they're mm-hmm. going to remember. But the energy in the room spot, there's no greater honor than people giving you the gift of their time. 
and you are never the most expensive part of the room. Even if I was getting paid $30,000, which I'm not right now as a keynoter, but even if I'm getting paid $30,000, like Gabby Bernstein might be, all the people in the room, they're taking that time away from work. So, so get the money out of your head and get the value out of your head. People are paying you for your experience and your expertise. And if you package that up in the energy that's uniquely you, it may not be higher energy and motivational. It could be straightforward and to the point. I know keynoters that walk around with papers in their arms. That's what you do. Then that's what you do. But we especially coming out of this COVID time, when we are back in the room together, you can't undervalue the energy that can come from the stage mm -hmm. uniquely. And I always tell myself, I'm not there for everyone, but I'm there for somebody. Somebody needs not just my message, but the way I'm going to show up in the room. That's so true too. I listen to a lot of different podcasts and follow a bunch of people and a lot of them say the same things, but sometimes it's like that one person says it that right way and it resonates with you. So did you then just offer to speak for free when you start out? Did you just contact organizations? Like, how did you get started? Gosh, that's a good point. It's just been a part of my career for so long. So <laughs> it's just, so I look at my, I look at it like I used to do at Zuzu Aquariums. What's my summer camp? right? When you are a parent, you always need something for your kids to do in the summer. When you're working at zoos and aquariums, people will always pay for summer camp. From the speaking side of things, where is that constant need? Okay. Easy things are like rotary clubs. They always need speakers. Your university alumni association, your, and there's a ton of them. There's business women's association, those places that have weekly events, even like there's a, there's a human resources associations, I man, they're not just, they have the potential as you go up from the local side to pay you to speak. But if you have a local event, especially if it's local and they need a speaker, go, <laughs> especially if you have a book or a program or things like that, because there's other ways you can diversify your income that way as, as well. You're never going to, at least I would not recommend trying to be a keynote speaker. And that's your only line of income. Cause now you've just narrowed your focus. That's how I, yeah, you just, and when you meet people, when you're networking or when you're talking, mm -hmm. when you introduce yourself as I'm a keynote speaker or I'm a leadership speaker. I'm a motivational speaker. People's interests are peaked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's like a certain threshold you reach and then you start getting invited and, and asked to do it. Okay. Yeah. Where's, the, where's the coolest place you've um, spoken at? The biggest place I've spoken at was University of South Florida. I was a graduate student. And when I finished my graduate degree, they invited me to give the keynote address for the incoming graduate students. So that was 4,000 people. Yeah. That was was super amazing. I think the coolest place has been any time that I can have a family member in the audience because oh, nice. it's really special to have uh, somebody that knows you and can call you on the carpet, but share your love and passion in a yeah. different way. That's great. Can you talk a little bit about your zoo and aquarium experience? I have a lot of my audience. I, I talk a lot about careers and so many people are interested in working in zoos, mostly zoos, but still some aquariums too. And, and they're very similar as well. So can you talk a little bit about what you did um, at the Shedd Aquarium and Bush Gardens and any other place that you worked at? 
Yeah, I found I still am involved. It was used in aquariums. There's an association. I just actually registered for the conference today. We're going to be in Columbus in September and I'll be uh, doing a breakout session. (laughs) You got it. What I did was work in the education department and I did that on purpose because I wanted to work with all the animals and I Mm -hmm. wanted to work with all the people and I wanted to travel. I wanted to do conservation in whatever home institution I was at and then out in the field as much as I could get. Mm And I just always put my hand up and said, yeah, I want to, sh- I'm going to be a better educator if I can come alongside you researcher or come alongside you exhibit designer and understand more about what you do, because I can then share that with my audiences, whether they're pre-K or whether they're the 80 year olds who are coming for continuing education. And so Shed Aquarium was a big, flashy, awesome tourist driven downtown organization with fantastic conservation efforts. And then I flipped the narrative and came down here to Sarasota, Florida, where I'm at now and worked for Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium, which was a research organization with a smaller aquarium. So I flipped it, but I wanted to see science in action. And so I got to be around science that hadn't yet been published even more so than I had been at Shed. It's, I, it's a great organization, but even if you can volunteer and it's hard to get jobs, but Mm -hmm. it's certainly not a possible and this is what we were talking about before. You can get a job as a public relations specialist. You can get a job as a donor. You can get a job as a experienced designer, not just in the conservation or a science or even education route. Yeah, absolutely. So before, so you asked researchers if you could tag along before, were people not really doing that? Is that something that you've started again? I think I started it. I was just super vocal about it. <laughs> I would just, I just wanted to soak everything up and I would still, even to this day, I would come out, come in on my days off or with the sea turtle researchers here in Florida, I went all you know overnight on the ATV watching to see when the mothers were going to come up and nest. They want access, but you've got to show the initiative. You've got to show the initiative. And it wasn't just the researchers. I wanted to see what it was like to go out and talk to the media too. And that was different. Yeah. Anything that I could get outside my education and science lens was helpful to me and still is. I love that. And I'm asking you more questions. I'm interested, but I'm also trying to point out to my audience, don't be afraid to ask the worst that could happen is people say no. Or in one of my um, programs, I have a mentoring program and when they start a job one of or even volunteering anything i always encourage them to have an expectation meetings with their advisor even if their advisor doesn't have one and to really make it known the things that they're interested in when i worked at disney world i did i worked in the hormone labs i did a lot of hormone research and there was another elephant um, researcher and i was super interested in working with elephants so one day um, he invited me to go and it wasn't elephants, but (laughs) he was studying elephant vocalization by the time that part was finished. So we went to, I think it was Gatorland. I think that's what it's called. And we were recording alligator vocalizations, but it was like, even just the car ride, I could talk to him for an hour about elephants and the whole day, the gators never ended up vocalizing. So we didn't get anything. But yeah, the, the, like Disney really cared about us learning. So they let me go and, and they invited me because they knew it was something I was interested in. So yeah, if you're interested in things, don't be afraid to ask the, the worst that they can say is no. Yeah. And always how good it feels when, when somebody else is interested in what you do. So yeah. People, so even if they have to say no, they're just going to be flattered or excited. Yeah. Absolutely. What advice would you give to somebody who's looking to work in a zoo or aquarium? I would tell them to diversify their experience as early as possible Hmm. because you're not sure 
you really can't be sure what kind of job you want mm -hmm. in a zoo or an aquarium until you explore what it, what possibilities there are. Mm -hmm. Think that it's only a keeper job or it's only aquarist. Those are very important jobs, but even those jobs, you're creating your own course. The vets in, in zoos, what medicine do I give this cheetah? There are not a lot of cheetahs in zoos and aquariums, right? You're still your road, which is exciting. Everything you do can help your job prospects at zoos and aquariums and uh, continuing to build relationships. So would you recommend that somebody just volunteers at a zoo, even if they're not in an area that they want to work in, but just as like an in to get in a zoo? Yeah, absolutely. Or whatever conservation or wildlife rehabilitation center is in your area, because they're all connected at, at a certain point, even a community engagement center or a local teen volunteer center, the zoo or the aquarium in your organization is going to be connected with whatever else is nearby, whether that's the science museum, whether that's the art center, or whether that's the boys and girls club. So no, even if you can't get that volunteer job yet, you mm -hmm. can work other places because that network is very strong among the community organizations. Yeah, absolutely. I always, I had a zoo job it was a long time ago, but I always sense that they're very competitive. That's what people talk about them being very competitive. And, and I always sense that having the network, having the in would be a great first step. Even again, if you're not able to get that first position, that's how you get started. Yeah. And it's how you find out what you don't want to do, which is as important as learning what you do want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that you talked about diversifying because I always tell people, I think we're on the same page. I always tell people to get as specific as possible when it comes <laughs> to their career. But I think you're saying like diversify to figure out what you like. But like what I mean is like a lot of people are like, oh, I want to be a wildlife biologist. And then they get like a bunch of training in all these different areas. And now it's so competitive that they always go with the person who has the most experience. So if your training is scattered, then chances are they're going to choose somebody else who's been working on telemetry for five years versus like your five months. But I think we're on the page, same page of figuring out where exactly you, you want to fit into those worlds. I think you're right. You're saying it in two different ways. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for joining me today. Do you have any final advice for anyone who's interested in this career or interested in working with wildlife in an unconventional way? I would say that continue to be driven by your passions mm -hmm. and don't underestimate the different courses that can take for your impact to still be felt. So if you're driven by wildlife, that can be your core. You could start as a conservation biologist, you could work in a zoo and aquarium, you could work for your local community center, you could work for the foundation, you could write articles for National Geographic, you could become a photographer. The average person has five careers, not just five jobs. Mm -hmm. don't, don't get frustrated because life changes. Maybe you want to move someplace differently. Maybe you need a different income level. Maybe you have different family members that come into your life. It's all okay. You never have to leave your passion. You can find different ways to invent yourself to continue to have the impact you want. I love that. And again, like we talked about this, that I think a lot of people think to have conservation impact, you have to be the one like working on the gorillas or, and one of the reasons why I transitioned in my career is because I felt like I could have more impact talking directly to people, especially kids, but every role has an impact. And there is this one, I can't remember where I heard it, but some sort of story or something where people were talking about how much impact this person had on them. It was in the hospital and they were saying like, so-and-so saved my life. So-and-so made my day. So-and-so was the most important thing. 
And it turned out like the way that they were talking about, you would assume they were like the head surgeon or like their doctor and it ended up being the janitor. And this person, they made it their job to make people's lives better that he, that I think it was a he, that he worked at the hospital and it was his goal. And even though his main responsibilities are cleaning and taking care of things like that's, he saw that he had an impact and he did have an impact. So when I tell people, they say they want to work in conservation, I'm like, you can, you can work in marketing or you can work in law or you can work in fundraising. It doesn't have to be like, you don't have to be the person out in the field with the elephants and cheetahs. There's lots of different options here. And even at corporations too, like I always argue, if you're the director of sustainability at Amazon, are you impacting conservation more than somebody who's in the field? Maybe because your decisions could have a, a huge impact. So there's lots of different ways to go out about being a conservationist. I love that. I'm so glad you're doing the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. It was great having you and what a fun career. And I wish you the best luck with moving forward with it. Thank you. I'm so glad to talk to you and, and so glad to meet all your listeners virtually. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you once again, Julie. Her book is called Wisdom from the Wild. You can connect with her on LinkedIn or on Instagram. Her username is Julie C. Henry. And her website is also, let me double check, juliechenry.com. All of these links will be posted in the show notes. I had so much fun talking to you today and I learned a lot. A lot of those questions about public speaking, I was genuinely interested because I really wanted to have a public speaking career at one point and maybe I still will. If I can get my words out right, tripped up a little bit there. But one thing that I really want to emphasize is at the end we are talking about impact and that there is more than one way to have an impact. And again, that's why I transitioned from my career. I was dead set on doing research for a very long time and I left because I really felt that I could reach more people, have more of an impact of conservation by talking to kids about wildlife when they're young so that they grow up with appreciation for it and become conservation and environmental stewards. And I really feel like that is going to have a big impact in the world. I learned this because when I was doing my research on African forest elephants, they're a critically endangered species right now. And I was studying them. I thought studying them would help their conservation, but it really didn't. It was super cool to learn about them. I loved my research, but they were getting poached. They were getting killed like crazy. And the only thing that can stop that is, is people. So it has to come, this appreciation for nature and this understanding has to come from people. And it's only when we have these connections with nature that we care about it and then we implement changes to preserve it. So again, open your mind to creative possibilities for how you can work with wildlife and conservation if being a scientist is not for you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Be kind to animals as always and be kind to each other. I love you so much. Bye. Are you an aspiring or struggling wildlife biologist, ecologist, conservation biologist, or anyone interested in a career with wildlife? Join our community, the Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology Facebook group. 
based on my book, Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology, what it's like and what you need to know, this Facebook group is designed to connect, support, and inspire future and current wildlife professionals or those who can't get a job. Come for daily affirmations to lead you to career success, job postings, and profiles of professionals in cool jobs. If you're struggling, feel stuck, lost, confused, or are just worried about this career, reach out to me at stephanie at fancyscientist.com to schedule a free clarity call. I've talked to over 100 aspiring wildlife professionals and those struggling to get a job, and they've told me what I also experienced. Degrees alone do not prepare you for wildlife careers. You need the right combination of experience, education, network, and skills to land the job you want. You also need to be able to convey that on a job application and sell yourself to the employer. I've looked at over 100 cover letters and interviewed graduates. I can tell you for sure they are selling themselves short, not listing all of their expertise and not marketing themselves effectively. I've talked to potential students who have dynamic personalities and sound so knowledgeable and experienced in person, but when I look at their resumes or CVs, none of that is reflected. If what you have been doing is not working, it's not all of a sudden going to start working. It's time to make a change. If you want to get your dream job in the fastest way possible, schedule a Zoom meeting with me today. No matter what stage of your career you are at, from high school student to graduate searching for jobs, I can help you. It is never too early or late to start. If this episode helped you or someone you know, make sure to tag me on Instagram at fancy underscore scientist and share this podcast with your community to continue spreading the word and reach more people. Also, be sure to leave a review on iTunes to receive extra positive vibes and love from me. Plus, you'll be helping me reach even more people with this important message. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you.